0: And turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. We're finishing up uh, a section here that began back in chapter 6, verse 12. So maybe I should have had you turn there. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 12. Solomon begins by asking a question. Who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him uh, under the sun? Uh, What's good for a man, a woman, a human being? What's good for you in your short life? In your short life? Um, I had a... Um, Experience this week, emphasizing the shortness of life. Yes, I've enjoyed uh, seeing a lot of things. And yes, from different, different, depending on your perspective, I still have a lot of years left. Uh, A college classmate of mine uh, went to be with the Lord this week. I think Shauna was about 53 or 54 years old. To me, that's young, but she went to be with the Lord. Um, Life is short. And so what's good for man? How do you respond? And so Solomon responded in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7 by giving a a lot of different practical encouragement, instructions on how to wisely live in this short, brief life. The last consideration, the last piece of advice is in verses 13 and 14. Um, It's also something of a warning as well. On how you must respond to situations and circumstances. So verses 13 and 14, consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Um, you and I need to respond Rightly, correctly, like Christ would. Um, What have we learned so far? There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, isn't there? Um, It's foolish to laugh and to party when things are somber and sad and difficult. Likewise, it's foolish to weep and to mourn during joyful times and prosperous times. You need to have an appropriate response to the different situations of life. Solomon doesn't make these instructions, what he says here, to change what God has done or what will do. He's not saying, I'm going to change or you can change what God has planned. He is saying this to help you see you need to correctly respond to what God has done. You need, as it says there on the top of your handout, a Christ-like response to God's sovereign plan. You must have a Christ-like response to God's sovereign plan. So we need to begin there with God's sovereign plan. Number one, is this a big subject, God's sovereign plan? It's infinite, isn't it? It's huge. Is it a potential minefield? Yeah, it is. Why is it a minefield? What makes it a minefield? What makes it a minefield is when we try to say, God couldn't do this or because of me. And well, that's wrong. We need to listen to what God has said in the Bible here. So this is a big subject uh, by far. There are many books written that go into great depth in detail about God's sovereign plan. Uh, But I must also say that there is a book that goes into great detail and depth about God's sovereign plan, so don't forget this. It is sad that there are Christians who belittle this subject. Whenever you read the Bible, it just runs throughout it, and so we need to have a right understanding. So despite the fact that there's all kinds of stuff written, and much in Scripture written, We're working through Ecclesiastes 7. And so while I'm going to note some other aspects of God's sovereignty and plan. We're going to stick mainly to what Solomon says here. Because these are points that Solomon is focusing on for you and me. So that we will know what is good for man in his short life. Solomon here teaches us three truths. He teaches us here... Three truths about God's sovereign plan. Number one, verse 14, we have this little phrase, God has appointed the one as well as the other. The first truth Solomon tells us about God's sovereign plan is that God directs, he directs all of life's circumstances. God has appointed the one prosperous times as well as the other adverse times. Good and bad times are in view. What's left out of that? Everything is involved here. Everything is involved. You must come away from this with this truth and this assurance that God is always in control. God is always in control. Give you some scripture here to underline this. There's Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three that we just read together. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. God humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. God was in complete control of Israel's wilderness wanderings. Job 1, verse 21, Job 1, verse 21, what did Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Psalm 135, verse 6, Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Ecclesiastes chapter three and verse fourteen. I know three fourteen, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that men would fear before Him. This truth that God directs all of life's circumstances, this helps us with several things. First, it is a blessed comfort. It is a blessed comfort. When you stop fighting and bucking against God's sovereign control over everything, it is a blessed comfort. You can rest in him. Number two, it is a humbling rebuke. It is not only a blessed comfort, it is a humbling rebuke. We tend to want to always, we think that we have our hands on the, the steering wheel and, and, and transmission of life and the brake pedal, don't we? And this is a humbling rebuke of who's really in, in control and in charge. This truth number three strengthens faith. It strengthens confidence in faith. That your God always does what is right and good and brings him glory. It's a blessed comfort. It's a humbling rebuke. It's a strength for confidence and faith. And one last point of application here um, is our praise. It should result in great praise to God. Awe-inspiring praise. This is an all-nighter, remember? My dad would look for key pieces of wood that would be an all-nighter that would keep the the wood burner going in the wintertime. This is an all-nighter for awe-inspired praise. A second truth that Solomon teaches here about God's sovereign plan in verse 13 where he says, Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The second truth is that God's plan cannot be changed. God's plan cannot be changed. Who can make straight? Is Solomon really looking for an answer? He's asking a rhetorical question. No one can. Another passage you could write down along this line would be Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Deuteronomy 4. Verses 34 and 35. In fact, let's, let's turn over there. So maybe put your bookmark in Ecclesiastes 7 and flip forward about four books or so, four or five books. Um, Daniel chapter 4 and verses 34 and 35. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. I've mentioned this a few times in the past, the past few weeks, so let's go there. Nebuchadnezzar was um, informed by God or through Daniel about a specific dream. Nebuchadnezzar would reach great heights, and eventually he would be brought down. And Nebuchadnezzar heard this, and then some years later, he's walking in his royal palace. And he says in verse 30, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Verse 31, While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, that and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and nails like bird claws. Verse 34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my, uh, my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Note this. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain him or say to him, what? What? Have you done? Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. God's plan cannot be changed. He is all wise. Remember how I talked a bit about that last week? God knows everything, and He is the only one who can take that complete knowledge and correctly apply it to everything. He is all wise. Who has more knowledge than God? Who has better wisdom than God? No one can change what he has done because there is no one wiser. God is all-powerful. He can do whatever his will uh, determines to do. Who can do any different? Who can go against him? Nebuchadnezzar said, who has more ability? Who has more resources? No one does. God is infinite. How do you get more than infinite? You can't. There is none greater than God. A third truth about God's sovereign plan from Ecclesiastes 7. In verse 14, it says, Man can find out nothing that will come after him. Number three, a third truth, is that only God knows all the what's. W-H-A-T apostrophe S. Only God knows all the what's of the future. Now, we usually focus on why. The why's of the past and the why's of the present. Like this. Lord, why did this happen? Or Lord, why am I going through this? But that's not what Solomon focuses on here. Now, getting back to the why's, are there scriptures that do give some information about that? That do give reasons for what God does? There are. Let me give you a few. First is Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. There, Paul says, We glory in tribulations knowing knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, And perseverance character and character hope. A second passage, Romans 8 28. You knew that one was coming, didn't you? Romans 8:28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. A third passage, James chapter 1, verse 3. James chapter 1, verse 3. And there James says knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. I emphasized a key word in all three of those. God has done this, and we know that in those circumstances, he's using that for these purposes and these reasons. Sometimes, though, we're like Job. We're not happy with those answers. We feel that we shouldn't be going through a particular set of circumstances. God, you owe us a better answer as to why. You owe me a better answer than that, Lord. We'll come back to Job in a little bit. Solomon here zeroes in not on why things happened. He is zeroing in on what will happen. Man can find out nothing that will come after him. God doesn't have multiple plans. He has a single, a single plan from eternity past, and everything is included in it. There are no loose ends in God's single eternity, eternal plan. There is only one God, and there is no other. If someone wants to say that there is someone in creation that has more power and can thwart God's plan, then we have somebody who is not merely equal with God, but we have somebody that is greater than God, don't we? There is a single plan that God has from eternity past. Scripture tells us this. And people, and sadly, especially Christians, they can respond to the fact of God's absolute, complete sovereignty with unbelief, with what about, as if they're trying to stump a chump, they can respond with rebellion. Let me give you an illustration to try to show the the foolishness of this. Kids, if you need any reminding, I hope not, you're going to, You won't be in trouble, but what is today, kids? Father's Day. Thank you. One kid know it. Today is Father's Day. God has ordained that dads are the head of the home. That is what God has ordained. They are ultimately responsible for everything that happens under their roof. That is what God has ordained. And that is a tremendous, awesome responsibility. Dads need God's wisdom and help. Slight Rabbit Trail. You might not be a dad. What should you do for the dads of our church then? You need to pray for them. They're in a position that God has put them in. They face pressures, they face temptations, they have fears. Every one of us has faults. We need God's help. Years ago, my oldest son, Andy, when he became a dad, so I guess it wasn't years ago, he asked me one of those kind of questions that makes you think a little bit. Andy was always good at those kinds of questions. Dad, looking back, is there anything that you would have done differently as a dad? I hate those kinds of questions. It's like when you're an interview for a job and they ask, what's your greatest weakness? I hate those kinds of questions. I didn't give them an answer because where do you start? You know. I've been thinking about that a lot this week. If there was one thing I would have done differently, I would have prayed more. I prayed a lot. We can put so much focus on what we need to do as dads, and we need to do those things. But unless the Lord works, we need to pray. Oral Bible Church, pray for our dads, that they will have God's wisdom and how to be the best dad that they should be. Back to the point of illustrating this. God has ordained. Dads are the head of the home. They're responsible for everything that happens under their roof. It's a great responsibility. But do people rebel against God's ordered plan for the family? Do people today rebel against that? Do they say that's a bunch of foolishness? They sure do. Who needs a dad? They don't believe it. They throw up objections. Does that change? Here's my question for you. Does that change God's truth? It doesn't. And just because people have objections, it doesn't change God's truth. They might come up with some compelling reasons. Some real I gotchas that you might not have a thorough answer with. But how you respond is you look at what God has said. The infinite and perfect God. And he has said this. And yeah, you might not be able to answer this sinner. Who has the breath of God in him. That God is keeping alive. As to why and how of God's sovereign plan. But you know God has said this. And that is what you must stick with. Only God knows the what's of the future. Ultimately, because God is infinite and perfect, we need to remember you are finite and that you're affected by sin. You might think, how am I affected by sin? Well, what happened three weeks ago? Tuesday at 1.30 p.m. Can't remember, can you? Why not? Our minds are affected by what? Sin. You will never know all the ins and outs. You'll never know all the what's and the whys of God's total plan. Never. So, what is the right response to God's plan, to what God does? It's what we will get to at the end of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 12 and verse 13, fear God and obey him. That is what you're responsible for. That is what you will give an account for. Verse 14 of chapter 12, fear God, keep us command because you will give an account for that. You know, I would say, praise the Lord that you are not responsible for a complete and thorough knowledge of God's total plan. We can't do what we're supposed to do, much less worry about what God is doing. You cannot know everything that God is going to do in the future. Let me review. Three aspects of God's plan here. Number one, he directs all of life's circumstances. Number two, his plan cannot be changed. Number three, only God knows all the what's about the future. So what's the right Christian response? Number two, you know what's easy to do? We enjoy good times like we read about in Deuteronomy 8 and we don't thank God and we live for ourselves. We can experience hard times and we can blame God. How should you respond in good times and bad times? Number one, look again at verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked and the day of prosperity be joyful. So number one, you must have a Christ like happiness in good times. A Christ like happiness in good times. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Joy is the idea of happiness. Glad, enjoying, delighting in, satisfied, and pleased with. Ecclesiastes, Solomon has said this a bunch of times already, most recently in chapter 5 and verse 18. In chapter 5, verse 18, he says, here's what I've seen. It's good and fitting for one to eat and drink to enjoy the good of all his labor. That's what God has given you. Christ-like happiness, joy, as a fruit of the Spirit as a result of living by faith. God has said this about his plan. He has told me to do this. I will believe what the Lord has said. And that's walking, being directed, being led by the Spirit. Obeying Him, trusting Him in this situation that providentially is a day of prosperity. Let me give you some examples from Scripture of when God's people were happy and providentially uh, prosperous days. I'll go through these quickly. Genesis chapter twenty-four, verse sixty-seven. Genesis twenty-four, verse sixty-seven. Isaac got a wife. Her name was Rebecca, and we read there that he loved her. He was joyful and happy. Ruth chapter four and verse fourteen. Ruth four and verse fourteen. Remember how the book of Ruth starts out? Man, it is bad news all the way around. How does it end? Ruth four fourteen. Ruth has a baby with Boaz, and the whole village is happy, joyful, and glad. Luke chapter one verse sixty four. Luke one verse sixty four. Old Zacharias and Elizabeth couldn't have any kids, and the Lord appeared to Zacharias in the temple. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And how did they respond? They praise the Lord. And they obeyed him. They named him John. Luke chapter 15, verse 6. Just two more. Luke 15, verse 6. This is actually from a parable that Jesus gave. A shepherd had a bunch of sheep. He lost one he went out into the highways and byways. He found it. He carried it back. And then we read in Luke 15, 6, he called all his friends, his fellow shepherds and their union, you know, the shepherds union, the local shepherds union, Called the village. And he said, rejoice with me. I have found what was lost. And then just a few verses later in Luke 15, 9, a last illustration of Luke 15, 9, a poor widow had nothing, and just had just a, a, a single coin. She lost it. Remember what she did? She went up and down to complete spring cleaning, total renovation. There it is, I found it. She was happy. Called her friends in the widow's union, uh, all her neighbors, and they rejoiced and were happy, were thankful, were pleased. This rejoicing is not self-gratifying indulgence. It is a holy, righteous, thankful, And God-praising response. When God brings prosperous, good times, as it were, what's the right response? A Christ-like happiness. On the other side of the coin, in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. You must have, number two, a Christ-like humility in bad times a Christ-like humility in bad times. When things go bad, we tend to react emotionally from our limited, sin-affected point of view. But that's not a spirit-controlled Christ-like response. What does a spirit-controlled Christ-like response to bad times involve and require? He tells us here in verse 14. In the day of adversity, what's the next word there? Consider. Consider. This is what you need to do. Don't respond with okay. He wants you to stop and do what? Think, consider, reflect on, chew on, contemplate, mull, ponder, weigh. What specifically? The greatness of God He appoints one as well as the other. That we've looked at about God's plan. Think on the greatness of God. Think also of how finite you are. There is a God and you are not him. In the day of adversity Think about who God is and that you are not God. That kind of reflection does not view God from your limited, sin-affected assessment of the circumstance. Well, I think God is doing this and he's just a meanie. And you take that assessment from your limited, sin-affected point of view, you take that and you kind of put it on God as if it's a mask that you make him wear and that's Who God is and what God has done. That's not what Solomon says to do here. Solomon says this, get in your Bible, learn more about who God is, what he said about himself, and end up with this truth, you are not God. And so you end up with this response, a humble trust. There's no answers to the wise. There's definitely not answers about the what's going to happen. A simple, humble trust. Remember 10, 15, 20 minutes ago when I talked about Job? Job went through all that and we can kind of do a Job response. God, what are you doing? Well, I'm teaching you perseverance. I'm helping you grow more like Christ. Uh, I cause all things to work together for good. That's not good enough, God. I deserve a better answer. That's what Job says through the book. Put your bookmark here again. Let's go to Job chapter 40. Job chapter 40. Job chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. In the day of adversity, consider, think, focus on who God is. Study your Bibles. You are not God, and you must have a humble trust. And we see that happening with Job twice. First, Job 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And then flip forward to chapter 42, verses 1 to 6. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld of you. He did what Solomon talked about. Consider, there is a God. You are not him. And he does what he determines to do. Verse 3, you ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He went above humble trust. He's trying to take God's place and be God's judge. And he recognized that and he repents of it. He confesses it to the Lord. Verse 4, listen, please, and let me speak, you said. I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, Job says in verse 5, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Did, did Job ever find out in the, in the, this all happened in the courts of heaven with Satan? Never learned about that. Job had to learn, you trust me. I am God, you are not. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A right response of who God is, a right response to who God is involves mind, thinking on truth, and meditating on that, and that controls your emotions and your actions. You're bringing it in line to what God has ordained ultimately results in you recognizing and saying something along this line. I do not know what is going to happen. God does, and I rest this in his hands. He says at the end of verse 14, man can find out nothing that will come after him. We do this, don't we? We try to figure out what's going to happen. Doesn't mean don't make plans, but what did James tell us about making plans? If the Lord wills. In adverse times, we need to have this humble trust in the Lord and say, God, I don't know what's going to happen. You do, and I'm trusting you. This is a fruit of the Spirit. This humble trust, living by faith, in a providential day of adversity. I gave some examples of the rejoicing. Let me give some examples of this resting in the Lord in times of adversity. First is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Remember when Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers? Forgotten seemingly by everyone. And what did Joseph say? He recognized God's providence. He recognized God's providence. A second illustration. 2 Samuel 16 verse 11. 2 Samuel 16 verse 11. David has gotten kicked out of his throne by his own son Absalom. He's leaving town as David and his, uh, all those who are faithful to him are leaving up on the ridge, there's this guy, Shimei. Remember Shimei? Cursing David. And some of David's mighty men said, let's go kill him. And David said, no, no. In 2 Samuel 16, 11, perhaps the Lord told him to do that. If the Lord's gracious and merciful, maybe he'll restore me. I'm going to rest in the Lord's hands. A third example, Acts 16, verse 25. Acts 16, 25. Paul and Silas are out preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And isn't that good news? And what ends up happening to them? They get beaten. They get thrown in jail. They're in irons. They can't get out. And how do they respond? They sing, they praise the Lord, they pray, they trust the Lord. A fourth example. Matthew 26, probably perhaps one of the greatest examples. Matthew 26, verse 39. Matthew 26, 39. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his Father, knowing that the cross is coming. And what did Jesus pray? Not my will, but yours be done. The Lord strengthened him, but the Lord didn't make his circumstances any better, did he? The Lord Jesus humbly trusted his heavenly father. And that most adverse Of circumstances. Did God fail Joseph? Did he fail David? Did he fail Paul and Silas? Did he fail his own son? No. The fact of the matter is, right now, every one of you, every one of us, we have some good things going right now in your life. And you have some difficult. Hard things going right now. Every one of us. That's life in a sin-cursed world, isn't it? The challenge is, is you can focus on one and ignore the other then. You make that your focus. And when you don't respond correctly to one circumstance, that is going to affect how you respond to the other circumstance. Is it possible to walk in the spirit and walk in the sin nature at the same time? He can't. We must always have a spirit-controlled Christ-like joy and a spirit Christ-like humility before him. We tend to say that the depth of one's faith is seen when he goes through a hard trial. I thought that for a long time but this passage helped me to see that's only half of it. Deuteronomy 8 helps us see that's only half of it. The depth of your faith is seen every day, all the day. Some of the greatest temptations for you to sin are when things are going really well. Remember that from Deuteronomy 8? When the Lord said, you're going to experience all this good stuff and then you're going to say, my hand has done this? None of this means that your life and your what you experience don't matter. Everything in your life matters, Christian. In the Lord's eyes, there's not a single part of your life that is outside God's loving control. Your life Your experiences are ordained by God for your good and his glory to accomplish his purposes. Think of this. Your life, your experiences, your joys, your hard times. There is nothing, as there's nothing left out of God's plan, there is never a time, never a time, when you shouldn't be 100% oriented, and committed to Jesus Christ. Let me make that a positive statement. You must always live a Christ-like life. Whether then you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So Christian, have a Christ-like happiness and prosperous times. Have a Christ-like humility in hard, bad, difficult times. We're not going to close with this hymn, but I'd like you to take your Burgundy Hymnals and turn with me to hymn 521. 521. Your Burgundy Hymnals 521. 521. Follow as I read, my times are in thy hand, my God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in thy hand, whatever they may be, in joy or pain, though dark or bright, as best may seem to thee. My times are in thy hand. Why should I doubt or fear? My Father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. My times are in thy hand. Jesus, the crucified, those hands my cruel sins had pierced are now my guard and guide. My times are in thy hand. I'll always trust in thee. And after death, At thy right hand I shall forever be. Let's pray.